Salam, guys. I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about what we can do with all our kids' Eid money that we've been collecting and looking after, no doubt, over the last few days. And something that's really fresh in mine and Ibrahim's minds, because we've got young children, is university. We say that because we've written before about our views on student loans, which I'll let Ibrahim explain in a short while. But irrespective of what your views are on student loans from an Islamic perspective, whether they're haram or halal, there's not much controversy in saying that it would still be nice to be able to pay your children's way through university. So what we're planning to do basically today is run through really, really practically how we're thinking about saving for our kids' university fees. And we are hopefully going to share around seven or so tips that will be able to help you guys save and invest in order to pay for your children's education at university. So Ibrahim Salikum, and why don't you kick us off with this whole discussion about whether or not student loans are permissible or not, and maybe the various views around that. And then we can get straight stuck into the more practical elements of saving and investing for the student loans. Sure. Jazakallah khair, Mohsin, and uh, assalamu alaikum, everybody. I thought really this would be quite a good way of keeping a podcast a really practical subject and trying to share tips that can be super useful to people actually starting like today. Before we dive in, I think it's important that we discuss the Sharia compliance aspect of all this. The standard view by a lot of scholars, including I think the majority of the Deobandi school in the UK, is that you should avoid student loans unless it's an absolute necessity. And by that, the approach that they take is that if you tried a few other avenues and you genuinely can't get by, then you should take student loans. The other school of thought is, I think, probably most prominently put by Sheikh Haytham al-Haddad, which is that student loans are not really a type of loan. And as a result of that, you can take that and it's perfectly permissible for you to take that. And it's best really modeled as a tax almost. And that's the second view. But regardless of the view that you take, and our personal view is the first position, i.e. that you should definitely try and avoid student loans as much as possible, because in, in our view, it is very much interest, and it should only be ever resorted to as a necessity. But regardless of which view you go for, it makes commercial sense 
to try and pay off that student fee upfront without necessarily having to pay back more than the student fee. Because even if you think it's permissible, I think you'd be much better off paying that 27 grand university fees immediately rather than ending up paying 60, 70, 100 grand over the next few decades if you pay that back slowly. So that's kind of the lie of the land. Perhaps, Mohsen, let's dive in and uh, start tucking into exactly how we go about it. Yeah, 100%. And the backdrop to all of this, by the way, is an article that Ibrahim wrote. So if you've not read it or you've not come across it, this is basically the background to this podcast. And Ibrahim's article was basically entitled How Your Kids' ED Could Fund Their University. And in it, he talks about seven steps, basically, that we can take. Each of them is a route in itself. And when I read it, I was really surprised by actually how easy it is. Because the thing about this sort of thing, and generally with saving and investing, is that if you've got time on your side, it is actually really easy. So as long as you've got a plan, and you've got the time to execute that plan, then actually saving up 27, 30 grand for 18 years time is not that difficult. And really, that's brought into real focus within the article, because what Ibrahim talks about is let's just take a standard example of when your kid is born, we're all kind of inundated with gifts, right? And I know that when my kids were about to be born or when they were born, I had family and friends kind of asking me what useful things that I can buy. We had like a wish list and people bought certain things from that wish list. And often when people don't know what to buy, they just give you cash. And what Ibrahim has modeled is that if you take as an average that you would get say 500 pounds in a gift of cash when the child is born, and you put that to one side and you use that as a base fund to basically just start saving. What he's then said further is that if you then take that 500 pounds and you promise yourself, or you just set a direct debit and just like set it in absolute stone, that you're going to save just 25 pounds a month. That's not ridiculous. That's a phone bill. It doesn't even go probably much towards an electricity bill. £25 is very, very feasible. And using that £500 base figure, £25 a month, and then around 50 quid for each of the two Eds, you would be shocked to understand that if you did that and you got an 8% return every year investing in a stock market, and bearing in mind the average is around 10% over the last 30 years in the stock market, by the end of 18 years, you'd have saved up around £18,000. I know that that's not £30,000, but it's a long way there. And what I really want to highlight there is actually, it's not that difficult. 25 quid a month is not difficult at all, hopefully. And if you then up that to 30, 40, 50 quid a month, then you would be getting towards your magic 30k figure. So I really just wanted to open up with that because I think it's so important that we understand just how straightforward this is. As long as you've got a plan, and you're willing to execute that plan religiously, then it can be super straightforward. Any further thoughts on that, Ibrahim? Yeah, no, Mohsen, I completely agree. I was, to be honest, quite surprised myself. And we run a personal finance website, so you'd expect us to be on top of this. But actually, I didn't realize quite how easy it can be, right, potentially to save up 30 grand. So as a matter of priority, this is something that me and my wife, we will be doing this week, inshallah, where we'll be setting that 50 quid direct debit for our son, because we don't want to end up when our son's 18, having to fork out nine grand over the next three years after that. And, you know, we've got another little one 
on the way as well. So it's that adds up to a lot of money. So pre-planning is absolutely essential to all this stuff. And the other thing I think someone mentioned, Naima, I think mentioned that you don't necessarily have to pay back the student loan as long as you don't meet the threshold. And this is actually quite an important point to just dwell on a little bit. There are two things I'd say to that, Naima. Firstly, I'd say that it is technically true that as long as you're earning below, I believe it's 25000 26000 you don't necessarily have to pay that back. However, if that is your situation and you've gone to university and you're in a job that is below 26000 I would ask the question, is it necessarily worth it for you to have gone to university where for the rest of your career, you stay in a job that is going to earn 26000 Bearing in mind, I think the national average is 30K plus. So the point is a wider one as well, which is when we plan to go to university, obviously is a prestigious thing in our community, but also generally as well in the UK. But we do have to ask ourselves three or four times, are we just doing this because it's a good thing to do and it's the done thing to do? Or are we doing it because it's genuinely going to add to my son or daughter or my own, if you're the person going, to my own job prospects and to my career? Having said that, university and going to university isn't just about getting a job at the end of it. It could be that you want to become an academic, you want to learn to do other things. That's fine. But for the majority of people, it will be about getting a job. So do double check, triple check your situation and don't just blindly walk into it just because everyone else is. So just have a look out for that question. I think that was a vital one to think about. The second kind of strategy that we can go for when saving up, so more since given strategy one, which is put 50 quid away every month and start with a base of 500 pounds and then just do that religiously for 18 years and you'll get to 31,000. The second approach that you can do is get your kids to do a job where they will make up that difference of 25 quid a month. So if you put 25 quid in, they should be able to put 25 quid in. It could look like them helping out in the family business. It could look like them doing a paper round, perhaps working at uh, supermarkets, even, quite frankly, encouraging them to sell sweets to their friends or in schools. I know sometimes parents get a bit iffy about that, but with my younger brothers, one of whom's in year eight at the moment, year eight or nine, I regularly encourage him to do that because I think it's not only entrepreneurial, but it shows them how hard it is to make honest living. So definitely get them to do that. And the earlier that they can do that, the better, because you will get the benefit of compounding. So the savings that you make in the first five to 10 years, even though they're still just 25 quid a month, you will get much, much more of a return in that five to 10 years over that full 18 year period. You'll get much, much more action from that first pot of money than you will get from the same 25 quid a month that you're putting in when your child is 16 years of age. And the reason is because the longer that money is in that investment, the longer it has to compound and add up and really, really multiply. So it's super important to get started early and get your kids started early as well. And it could even be things like lemonade stands. I know that the US, they love these, the lemonade stands and ice cream stands. Get your kids out there because every single little thing can add up. Mohsin, do you want to take the next one? This is your favorite subject. 
I don't know about that. But I mean, just to add on that point, I think it's really true about getting your kids to try and do stuff. And I say this to myself because this is something that I really want my kids to be doing. These experiences are things that they will find so, so useful later. They might sound menial right now, but honestly, the skills that you gain from them, and to this day, like when we're thinking about hiring people or even like the startups that we invest in and things like that, we're looking often for these little nuggets of information that tell us what this person is actually like. And if they start telling us that their entrepreneurial knack began when they were selling sweets at school and stuff like that, it might sound like really small. And I guess in the grand scheme of things, it is quite small, but it really does bring about a certain type of quality and a personality trait that's really important to see later in life. So I definitely encourage that. So far, we've covered two things. Option one is saving long-term and investing. Option two is getting your kids to actually earn a little bit of the money that's going into that savings pot. Option three is essentially a high return investment. And one of my favorite high return investments is buying small, profitable businesses. I've written about this and I've done a podcast on this separately as well. But in a nutshell, the reason I like small businesses is because they are a very, very buyer-friendly market. You can pick up small businesses. If you do well, you can pick them up at maybe a multiple of two times the net profit of that business. So what I mean is if you've got a small business that is making, I don't know, 15 grand a year in net profit, you may very realistically be able to buy that for £30,000. And I don't need to tell you that you only need two years in that business to basically pay back your investment. And after that, it's kind of free money, as it were. And the reason that something like that is worth considering in the context of university is that you might have your 10, 20 grand right now, or you might even have your 30 grand. But if you sit on it, then inflation is going to erode away at that. Whereas if you could put that money into a small business, you get your payback within two years or maybe three years if you're buying a business slightly more expensive. But then you've got the rest of the time to be able to just make money from that. So let's take an example. Let's say you buy a business for £30,000. You manage to save up thirty grand, but your kid doesn't need to go to university for, I don't know, another 10 years, perhaps. You buy a small business for £30,000. You run the business and it turns out it's exactly as the seller sold it to you. It makes bang on £15,000 net profit in year one, bang on £15,000 net profit in year two. That's your investment paid for and your kids have still got eight years to go. So you've secured that £30,000 that you had already. You can then lock that away if you like. But then at the end of it, you've still got this business that's throwing off £15,000 a year. And that's a net bonus in your monthly salary. That's the way that you can look at it. In the round, it's basically just a high return investment. But finding those is quite hard. But one of the things that I found historically is that small business is definitely one of those potential things. If you're interested in this whole area, then inshallah, we will write more extensively about it and stuff. You can do some research online. But the key really is that these are typically run by usually sometimes an old person or single mother type person or even a couple. The small businesses, they aren't really usually scalable. They're perfectly doing fine, but they're not going to be billion dollar businesses, but they're perfectly suitable for you perhaps. So that's definitely something else that's worth considering. So let's dive into strategy four, which is, and by the way, guys, the first 10 years, 
you can dabble a little bit with things like small businesses because with the first 10 years, you can afford to take a little bit more risk because you've got obviously a lot of time still left. But you don't want to start taking risks 15 years in and try and start betting the little that you have in hopes that you'll make back like a 10 times return in the next two years because that's probably not going to happen. You'll probably end up losing the little that you have. So the next strategy that I would like to talk about is one that I think is really overlooked and hugely underrated and is actually a great way. And this is something that I will be getting my kids to do, inshallah, when they get to that right age. And that is get your kids to take a gap year before, during, and even after university, and perhaps even all three, because that will add, A, a whole load of cash to your account, and you can use that to pay off the student loans. B, it will add a whole lot of life experience to that kid. C, it will add a whole lot of CV points to that kid's CV, which will make it much more hireable than someone else who has also just exited from university. So I took a gap year both before and after university. Alhamdulillah, it hasn't really stopped me in terms of a career at all. I think people often overrate this, how important it is to get straight into the career. It isn't necessarily as important as you might think. And as long as you're not like 30 plus by the time you get your first job, you should be perfectly fine, inshallah. Most people will end up going into their first career after taking gap years, anywhere between the age of 23 and 25. That's perfectly fine. And the benefit they will get is they will be exiting that university period without any loans to their name. I mean, that's just amazing. And the kind of things that students can work on, if they want to go into things like the city, there are a whole load of very, very high-paying internships over the summer schemes that are run in the city where you can earn anywhere between five and 10 grand just for a few months' worth of work. So definitely something to look into. And even if you don't want to go for that, doing gap year and working, frankly, in somewhere like Tesco, just stacking shelves, and also doing some self-study in the evening, maybe starting your island course or something like that on the evening, that's perfectly fine, right? I think that is a productive use of that year if you do that. And if you can be a bit more creative and try and get some work experience or some kind of job in an area that you actually want to work in, even better. So like, for example, in my gap year, one of them, I worked as a paralegal, the lowest kind of level in a law firm for about six months, which is great, right? I was paid minimum wage, but I was doing a decent job and I was getting exposure to an area that I really like. And that job was on my CV and it still is on my CV. I'm sure it came in helpful during application. So definitely something to bear in mind. And I think that this is actually a really, really realistic option for pretty much everyone. Because many people will say, oh, look, you've got other options on here where you say another strategy is that you have to save up lots of money and I'm poor, I can't do that. Or you need to get a bursary or a scholarship and I've applied, but I can't get that. This is something that pretty much everyone can do. And if you do it strategically, you cannot have to take out a student loan. And I know people who took multiple gap years during the university and they're doing perfectly fine now. So inshallah, this is a really good strategy to adopt. Completely agreed. And to be honest with you, like of all the options, I think option one is like a really good one that us parents should be definitely doing. But this one is the one that, especially if you are someone who your child might now be 13, 14, 15, 
and you're actually thinking, I've not got 18 years to save and invest. This is actually the option that I think you can sit your child down and just help them to understand the economics of how this actually all works. And I'm seeing quite a few really interesting comments. So Miss D is saying that, alhamdulillah, she was able to gather up £36,000 in four years throughout uni. We've got Zainab talking about her experience taking a gap year, and actually it made her more employable. And to be honest, I completely resonate with that. As I said earlier, like now Ibrahim and I are kind of in the position of looking for talent to hire. And if I saw somebody with a gap year and they were doing something really productive in that gap year, far from raising an eyebrow, I'd actually go the other way. I'd actually say it makes them preferable to a candidate who's just done the standard university and then work. Because think about it. What does it tell you about that person? It tells you that they're strong-minded, they're independent, they think through their decisions, they're willing to take responsibility on their shoulders. It tells you a lot about their mindset. And actually, there's so much you can do. And the one thing I wanted to add to Ibrahim's points was that if you understand your child, let's say you've got a 15-year-old at home, you can sit them down, help them really understand things and actually work on a plan together and say, look, you should do a gap year before uni. And this is the master plan that you're going to do. One thing that I would recommend, because it's just fresh on my mind right now, and having now transitioned from kind of employee from our law days to now business owners, one thing that we see as business owners is the real lack of talent that's readily available in the tech world. So our experience is now telling us that developers are like highly in demand. They often have jobs kind of waiting for them. And it's also something where you can pick up developers across the world to do contracts jobs as well. So if you've got a child who's 15, 16, they're uh, twiddling their thumbs about what to do, get them to just learn some coding and get into that whole scene because there's so much opportunity there. And even whilst they're at uni, even if they don't want to take a gap year, there's the opportunity to make money through university. They can pick up contractor jobs through university. They're often very well paid. You can very, very feasibly fund your way through university doing things like that. Brilliant. No, JazakAllah Khair Mohsin for that. So to recap what we talked about, we've talked about setting a direct debit, strategy one. Strategy two, we said get your kids to do a job, mucking. Strategy three was get yourself a small business. Strategy four was take gap years. Strategy five, Mohsin, you just talked about was get yourself a skill that you can use during university and even before that will be in high demand. We know examples of people who have managed to pay their entire fees off by setting up a business where they were tutoring. Midway through their university, they'd paid off the entire fees by tutoring and setting up a business around that, getting other people to tutor as well. We know another case of a guy who set up a coding and software development business where he's making a six-figure salary as a university student, and he's more than obviously paid off his student fees as a result of that. And that kind of stuff will come by obviously starting very early and just really dedicating time to that. I think the final, from my side, strategy is get yourself a bursary or a scholarship. It is actually surprising how many bursaries and scholarships are readily available these days often really underestimated by people, particularly given that Muslims are often from a black minority ethnic background, you'll get more support or from a relatively under the kind of median income level, you will get more support as a result of that. 
And I myself got a bursary, 15,000 it was back then, which massively helped pay my way through university. And it's very, very feasible, inshallah, particularly if you get into the better universities. So I know that Oxford and Cambridge have lots and lots of money to give to people who might be struggling. So definitely take advantage of that. JAMA.co have some resources where they've listed out, I've shared the link there in the chat, where they've listed out the kind of bursaries that are available. But my point is here that it's easy to say, oh, I'll just go for a student loan. I won't get any bursaries. I applied for one or two. It didn't really happen. In my view, a student loan is an interest-bearing loan, and we need to avoid it. And if you haven't put in 10, 15 applications for a bursary or a scholarship and failed in all of them, fine. In that case, go for a student loan. But if you haven't done that hard work, then I don't feel like you can in good conscience say to yourself that, you know what, I've tried my best to avoid the student loan. And it doesn't actually take that much effort either, because once you do a few bursary of applications, it's the same sort of thing that you can roll out for a few others. And it's great practice for your job as well, by the way, because bursary applications, any kind of application is great for learning how to go about it. And that's it from my side. Mohsin, do you have any other final tips to kind of add on before we go into the questions? Not so much tips, but just like a wrap-up point, really, about the way the world has moved is very, very different to when we were at university, like 10 years ago, whenever it was. And what I mean by that, and I think someone mentioned in the comments as well, that the thing nowadays is that you don't need to go out to make money. Everything is kind of centered online. You can do lots of things. You can hustle your way to make serious amount of money. And if your intention is you want to avoid this interest, then surely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you on that journey. And more than that, as we've kind of alluded to throughout this conversation, these are the skills and the stories that your interviewers at the top corporate jobs are going to be talking about. When I was interviewing at top law firms and various stuff like that, and I'm sure you've had similar experience, Ibrahim, they didn't talk to me about my grades, my exams or anything like that. What they talked to me about was the kind of slightly more quirky and interesting stuff that was on my CV. Often that was kind of business related or some other skill, interest, hobby, something like that. And it's often actually what you do on the side that determines whether you even get an interview, first of all, because it makes you sound interesting and whether an interviewer actually likes you because they've got all these talented people. But what they actually want is people with grit, determination and the smarts to be able to actually do well at a job. So far from being a last resort, I actually think a lot of this should be the first resort because putting aside the Islamic question, which is really important anyway, but putting that aside for a second, there's a genuine commercial reason why I think you should be doing all of this. That all makes sense. Final point before we dive into the questions is a lot of the things that we've talked about involve, or at least some of them involve saving. And the question arises, well, where should I put my money? I'll talk you through the way I'm approaching it with my wife, because this is a very real decision that we're making today. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm probably just going to put it into Wahid, Wahid Invest, and I'll set a 50 quid direct debit into an ISA. I'll probably go for the aggressive or moderately aggressive option because it's 18 years, right? It doesn't really make a big difference. And overall, the market will work itself out. I'll just forget about it. I won't even look at the Wahid Invest because short-term ups and downs are not important to me because if I'm holding it for 18 years, as long as I trust what they're up to with their fund management, which I am, I'll just put it on there and I'll forget about it. 
There are other options that you can go for as well, which is simply ethical. You could go for Sarwa. You could go for Yielders. Uh, so if you go into the property crowdfunding, you can invest regularly through Yielders and get a decent rental return on that. So all of these are good options to have. But the reason why I personally would go with Wahid is, and even though, by the way, Simply Ethical is more expensive than Wahid, I think I would still go with Wahid. And the reason is because they're just easy to use. They're very user-friendly in terms of the layout that they've got. Customer experience is simple, which I find is a little bit lacking on some of the other ones mentioned, although I think Yield is actually pretty good as well. So that's kind of my quick take on where to put the money. Although, obviously, you should do your full research into this. And you could also, by the way, use our Halal Investment um, page to compare your options and narrow down exactly which one you want to go for. And I'll share the link in the chat as well. Just one last thing before we get into the last 10 minutes or so. Once you've kind of saved all your money, let's say you, you drop your kid off to university, happy days. There is this question, and I was thinking about this just before we went live, of what about the kind of ongoing maintenance and living costs and all that kind of stuff? I haven't thought too much in depth about that. One option is just to fund that yourself. One option, I guess, is to get your kid to earn his keep or her keep through some of the methods that we described earlier. Another option, actually, is that you turn their university stay into an investment opportunity for yourself. What I mean by that is you could have them buy a house on the outskirts or buy an apartment or something in that university city or university town, depending on where they end up at university. And you could basically put down an investment into that, have them live there, perhaps get some housemates in to be able to cover your child's portion. So let's say the market rent is £600 a month. Your child gets in two other people. They each pay £300. So you're getting your £600 a month. Your child is staying there rent-free. And then after your child leaves, you can rent this place out at £600 per month anyway. So you could turn their thing into an investment opportunity. And of course, you'll have somebody looking after your property, not least your own flesh and blood. So that's just something to bear in mind for the ongoing cost as well. Brilliant. Let's whiz through these because inshallah we'll probably wrap up in about 10-15 minutes. So Misty points out that a lot of working class Muslim families might have multiple kids. How do you deal with that? I mean, my own brother-in-law has, I think at the last count, it was 12 kids. I think I've lost count now. And paying university fees for that number of children will be difficult. It's a really fair point. I would say that you should definitely, as much as you can, save in advance. And you should use a combination of all these different strategies. So you should save in advance, but then make sure you take advantage of the gap year options. Get your kids to be applying for the bursaries and scholarships early. And look at the scholarships and bursaries like two or three years in advance, by the way, because you might see, oh, that's kind of what they're looking for. So why don't I get my kids who are going to be coming up for that application soon into those areas or into those subjects that these bursaries will supply? And so they'll have a really good chance of getting that bursary or scholarship. So use a combination of all of these things. And I genuinely think working class families have an advantage as well when it comes to bursaries and scholarships, because that's where a lot of the focus is for these scholarships. So they want to be giving it to people from working class backgrounds. It's a great point, And that it does require a specific strategy around that, Misty. But I think, inshallah, there are ways to do that. Naima is saying the majority of people will not pay off their cost of their degree, let alone the interest. Okay, yeah, that's a fair point, and that's problematic. That's why we should pay off early. Is this justification for taking out student loans? No interest will be paid. So the majority of people will not pay off the cost of their degree, but that's because 
they won't necessarily have paid off the amount by the time they retire. But most people will have started paying off their student loan because most people will end up having a salary at some point or another over that 26,000 threshold. Zainab is asking, I'm a bit confused. You thought just join AJ Bell and it was fine. I'm better off going through why? So they've checked all the companies for me. It's a good question. I think for me, it's because it's just hassle-free. AJ Bell is a perfectly good option as well. I know Mohsin, I think you use that. And I'm in the process of setting up an account myself. But the reason why that 50 quid direct debit for me is just not worth the hassle of like thinking about it. For me, like if I'm investing with my pot of money with AJ Bell, I'd want to be properly researching stocks and shares. That's just me personally, right? So for me, in my head, AJ Bell is somewhere where I can think a bit more about my portfolio. Whereas Wahid, for me, is almost like a savings account where I just put stuff and just forget about it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that the thing about AJ Bell is that you've got Sharia compliant funds in there. Those are funds that are investing in the stock market only. Whereas with Wahid, you can kind of get a bit more of a balanced portfolio. So Ibrahim mentioned, for example, like the moderately aggressive or like the cautious version within Wahid. They'll be introducing like Sukuk and few other investments in there that aren't necessarily available on AJ Bell. So I would say that like if you want to go stock market heavy, AJ Bell is perfectly fine. There are Sharia compliant stock market funds in there. And in addition, what AJ Bell will give you that Wahid will not give you is the ability to invest directly into companies. So my approach with my kids is that I'm locked into a particular investment strategy over the next four years that's going to give me a certain return. That's my plan. And then after four years is up, I'm going to need to basically roll that money up into a new strategy. I don't know what that strategy is going to be yet, but it might be that I turn to the stock market. And generally speaking, for me personally, whilst my kids are young, because they'll only be like seven in four years time, then I might decide to invest in individual companies. So let's say by that time, I've saved up, I don't know, 10, 20 grand for both of them. I might just go really aggressive. I might just be like, you know what? I'm going to put four grand in Apple, four grand in Microsoft, four grand in Google or similar, and just go quite aggressive. Whereas I think Wahid is what Ibrahim's saying is kind of a bit less thinking, a bit easier, more like set and forget type approach. Yeah. And that's actually a fair point. I might do that myself. Like once that pot of money for Suleiman's student fees has mounted up to a few grand, I may well, because I actually enjoy investing, I may well extract it and do what you said, because that sounds quite appealing. And it puts the money to work as well. So Misty is sharing how she saved up 36 grand in four years through university. And Zainab said she took two years gap year, and no one raised an eyebrow. And it was actually made her more employable, which is very much our experience as well. Zainab is saying, I'm worried about my children being involved in money making too early in life as I'm worried she'll become obsessed with money-making. You can judge your child the best. My view is that it's never too early to be getting your kids into entrepreneurship because they'll mess up a whole bunch of times before they get anywhere. It's a real skill to have to be able to sell something to someone, and they'll realize when they do that that it's not simple stuff that they're having to do. So I would definitely encourage getting your kids involved early in money-making. And money-making itself, is not a bad thing. There was an article that I wrote about, is it wrong to be rich in Islam, which I'll just share now on the link. And I think that that's an important philosophical underpinning to what I'm saying, which is that it's not wrong to be rich. And it's not wrong to tell your kids that we want to be rich. But I caveat that with 
why do we want to be rich? We don't care about the money, really. We care about the end that we're going to be putting that money to. But yeah, that's a very like brief summary of what we discussed. Just an addendum um, to that. I completely agree with Ibrahim. And I think that, to be honest, it's not as simple as saying that if I get them into making money, they're going to be obsessed with making money. And that obsession is wrong because you can be obsessed with making money but actually, if your intention is really sincere and really good, that's all ajr and reward if you're doing it for the right intention. And further to that, this whole concept of introducing kids to money is actually really, really important because we all know how bad financial education is in this country. And to be honest, like globally, most people, they don't know much about finances. You try and talk to your kids about insurance and saving and setting money aside for the bills and rent and all the kind of household things that we do on a month to month basis. Your kids are not going to be interested in that. But one day they're going to have to face it. Do you want your kids to go armed with a decent financial underpinning or do you want them to just face the short, sharp shock that the world will give them? For me personally, it's the first approach and I would definitely personally be introducing my kids to money elements, hopefully quite early on. Uh, brilliant. Abdullah Ahmed is saying that he's currently in second gap year because of this and it's been difficult and stressful, however, and other people have given him words of support our support as well to you. Look, if it's putting you into a genuine hardship for whatever specific reasons, then as I said at the start, the, the student loan is an option, but it's something that if you can avoid, it's better to avoid. But yeah, it's great to see that you're struggling and striving because that really is the key thing that Allah SWT will look at. Muhammad is saying, I'm halfway through uni and I want to pay off the loan. Would you recommend prioritize paying it off aggressively ASAP post-graduation? instead of using my income to save benefit from compound. My thoughts on this are that, it's not really my thoughts, Mufti Bilal, who we talked to on this, his view was that you should really try and get out of your loan situation as soon as you possibly can. But that doesn't mean necessarily that you put yourself into hardship or you stop yourself saving enough to get a deposit for a mortgage, for example, Islamic mortgage, or other kind of things like that. You very much can factor those things in but with those things factored in if you can pay a bit more extra to the student loan then you certainly should and given where you are right now you might well consider okay can I take a gap year after university or can I take a gap year even now and really aggressively save and get myself to a position where paying off the rest of the student loan is actually relatively easy and then of course paying it off earlier is better because it doesn't let the student loan itself mount up. Misty do you want to take this Mohsin? Are we factoring in the fact that the lovely government slash, <laughs> yeah, that's, this is true. So Miss D is saying that in 18 years time, this tuition fee is going to be £50,000, in which case we're all screwed then, aren't we, Miss D? So <laughs> this is all is all quite redundant. Yeah, no, I mean, all jokes aside, that does bring an important point, though. We mentioned like 27K as the marker. But it's true to say that it probably will be more in 18 years time. And you can probably factor in some inflation. So I would say that as at least a benchmark for thinking about the money from like an erosion perspective, you should at least be making inflation on your money for exactly that reason. It's likely that it is going to be more than nine grand in 18 years' time. Abdullah, your idea of moving to Scotland is bang on. It is actually a genuine strategy. Yeah. And my brother-in-law with 12 kids was genuinely thinking about doing that because of that precise reason. And uh, Misty points out that you don't even have to own the property that Mohsin was talking about renting out, you could just get your kids to take a lease and sublet it out to other people. 
and pocket the difference. That sounds like a plan to me. Muhammad asks, would it be a smart move to put a large proportion of my monthly income into Wahid? As you know, we're not financial advisors, so take everything we say with a degree of, I need to actually go away and think about this myself. Putting a large proportion of your savings, I don't know about your monthly income, but putting a large proportion of your savings into Wahid would not be a ridiculous thing to do, right? It may not necessarily be the right thing to do. You need to have a think about everything, all things considered, and have a look through. We did a Halal Investing 101 video a few weeks ago that you'll check out on this YouTube channel if you go into our channel page. Have a watch of that about how to prioritize your investment and where you're putting your money. Also have a look at our investment checklist that we have, which is a free resource on our website and go through that as well. Because it isn't a decision that you can make in isolation about, oh, is it a wise move to do this? Because it's not really about that move. It's about what are you trying to achieve with your money in the first place? So that's kind of where you should be coming at it. But yeah, high level, it wouldn't be a ridiculous move to do that. But it has to make sense for you, given what your situation is. Mohsen, do you want to take Hassan's question? Sure. So this is a question about the small business investing being interesting. And Hassan is asking, are there any websites or avenues through which this can be done? So the thing about buying small businesses is a very, very manual process. And you need to be very clear about what you're getting into. So that means you need to understand how to do due diligence on that business. You need to understand the legal agreements that you're going to sign to make yourself comfortable that you're getting the relevant warranties or kind of promises from the seller. So it's not something that is as simple as going on a website and clicking add to cart and putting your credit card down. If you type in kind of businesses for sale, you'll see these kind of small business websites pop up. So there are websites like rightbiz.co.uk and, and a few others that you'll see. What I recommend is just spend time going through the listings and you'll see the different types of businesses that are available. Some are online, some are like mom and pop shop type places, et cetera, et cetera. And the key thing actually with the small businesses is to get your radar going for the scams because there are a bunch of things out there. So there's people, for example, that like they'll create websites. They'll be like, oh, online business for sale, potential to earn thousands. And that sounds well and good. And it's like a low price point. It'd be like a thousand pounds or something. It sounds well and good, but actually it doesn't mean anything because I could create a website today but the hard bit is actually getting customers to it. So as a first point of call, I just recommend going online and searching businesses for sale and just go through the listings and get a feel for it. Brilliant. Hassan also has a great tip, which is avoid unnecessary costs. Also a related point, I think moving to London or a Manchester or a big university town early, particularly London, I think is great because it's got so many universities early on in your career, far earlier than your kids would have to go to university is actually a good idea because it will just increase the opportunity that your kids have of going to university without having to pay any rent. And that is a game changer because rent in London is a lot. And rent in any place really will add up to tens of thousands of pounds over the course of the three years. So think strategically about stuff like that as well. London, I think, is a great shout. Misty has been absolutely churning out some great tips we should get Misty onto Islamic Finance Guru, do a guest article or something. I think Degree of apprenticeships, they're also a great option and you get great experience while studying. Yep, definitely, Misty. Yeah. The um, thing with those apprenticeships is you can get, previously it was kind of like manual jobs that were more apprentice type stuff. Nowadays, like there's solicitor apprentice groups and all sorts, like massive firms are doing apprenticeships. So definitely. 
Mohsin, you want to take Usman? Yeah, so Usman's question is, as an 18-year-old with no stocks or shares experience, could I just chuck £200 ED money with medium risk into Wahid, or would I need to sit down and properly research into it? The answer to your question is, yes, you could just chuck £200 into Wahid Invest, because as we were explaining before, it's not really something that you need to think about, which is one of the pros of Wahid. My personal view, though, is that you should take that £200 and invest it in yourself, buy some books, depends on which way you're inclined. But this is what I did quite early on. And I think Ibrahim was doing similar stuff at the time as well, is just buying books and investing in your own education, particularly about the stock market. Because what I tried to do early on was learn all my lessons and get it out of the way. And any money that I lost, I saw it as tuition fee. So if I lost £1,000 in the stock market, as a 20 year old or something, that wasn't that important to me because that thousand pounds that I may have lost, that will teach me skills that mean that I don't lose 50,000 pounds when I'm 35, when I've actually got more money to test out. Because what I've seen time and time again is people, they get to a certain point in life, they realize they've not done much with their money, but they've actually got like 50 grand in the bank. So they'll test out strategies with like 20 grand. Whereas if you've got a 20 year old who tested it out with his 500 quid or his one grand, he's learned the lesson already and he's passed that. So I would personally, honestly, invest it in yourself, buy some books. Ones that I recommend on the stock market are One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, who's one of the most, if not the most successful fund managers ever. Another one I'd recommend is called Zulu Investing, which is about kind of investing in small cap shares. There are some other classic ones like the Benjamin Graham books and stuff like that. But those two are slightly more niche, but actually I think like super, super useful. Great stuff. Mostly not going to pay for that. There's a lot of discussion going on. So Zainab is saying, I put 100 quid in, I've now got 110 quid. Generally thinking about this, investing small amounts of money, relatively speaking, I actually agree with you most in that. If you've got a discrete like 100 quid or 200 quid that you have, you're going to invest. Fundamentally, that's not going to make a huge money for you. As Zainab, you found 10% return is great. On 100 quid, it's going to make you 10 quid. On 100,000, it's going to make you 10,000, which is great. So if you're investing small amounts of money, unless you're doing it consistently, like for example, for me and my wife, if we're going to set a 50 quid direct debit, 50 quid is not a lot of money, but because of direct debit, it will add up over three years to something like 1,800, 2,000 pounds. And that's a decent amount of money. Even that, frankly, is not a massive amount of money, but relatively speaking, it's much bigger. So if you've got a small, discrete amount of money and you're not planning to do a direct debit, then I would completely agree with you, Mohsin. Invest in yourself because that's where you actually see a much bigger ROI, a much bigger return on investment. If, however, you've got a plan to be setting a direct debit, then definitely use robo-advisors and AJ Bell. You can set direct debits there and use that. In terms of risk... Abdullah asking and Zainab is replying about the risk. Companies like Wahid and RoboAdvisors, when they say ultra-aggressive, actually in the broad picture of things, it's not that aggressive. It is definitely more aggressive than their conservative option, but you're not going to really end up losing your shirt on it. What it really means is instead of with the ultra-cautious approach, the volatility will be probably like it'll go up or down like a few percentage points, one or two percent up or down. With the aggressive approach, you'll probably have volatility where it can go up or down by about 5 maybe even 10%. But ultra-aggressive doesn't mean you could end up potentially losing your entire amount. It's just very, very unlikely that that would happen. 
you've answered a lot of the other ones. Perhaps we call it a day on that. Jazakallah everyone for tuning in. And uh, please do subscribe to our channel, uh, inshallah, and like the video if you found that useful. If you've got any follow-up questions, then always just drop us a line on the contact form and we'll be happy to get back to you on that. Until next time, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.